Well, thanks, Mark. Good morning. Welcome to Auckland AV. I want to add my welcome to Lachlan's. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here. And what a privilege it is to sit under God's Word. And we really are excited as a church to keep coming back to God's Word and letting it shape and mold us. And this passage has been one that's been incredibly helpful for me, just not, every, not only just over the last year, but over my whole life as a Christian. So why don't we pray that as we think through what God is saying to us through Paul, He'd shape us and change us by His Spirit today. Let's pray. Lord God, you've brought us all together today to hear your word, to speak to us and to address us as people and as your church. And so we ask now that as we think through the implications of what you've said and how that changes our lives, that by your spirit you'd you'd comfort us and challenge us, that we might live for you and see death as gain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 1996, and I was about 15 years old. And I can remember lying on the hospital hospital gurney, uh, going in for brain surgery. Uh, I didn't know what would happen out of this. The doctors didn't know what the actual problem was. I was losing vision in one side of my body and feeling in one side of my body. And so they decided the best thing to do after scans was to uh, operate uh, and see if they could find out what the problem was. I remember lying there. Uh, and seeing as the doors opened the drill that they were going to use to drill through my skull. And, and then as I lay there looking up at the light on the trolley, thinking, what would happen next? I can remember thinking at that moment, is this it? <laughs> is this life? Or would there be more life to come, either uh, waking up from this operation or facing my saviour forever? Just this week, I saw a TED talk from a paramedic. A guy's name is Matthew O'Reilly, if you want to look it up and check it out later. Uh, He talked about sharing with patients what he called the moment of impending doom. Not the happiest moment, but but it brought up a number of things for him. It was the moment where the patient is so critically ill as he gets there as a paramedic that there's there's nothing else he can do for them. And the patient asks the paramedic this question, is this it? He talks about three patterns that he almost universally observes in people. Three things that they almost all bring up, they're not totally freaking out, they generally bring up these issues. Number one, the need for forgiveness. Regardless of people's religious belief or background, he says all of them seem to have a need for forgiveness. Whether they call it sin or regret, this need, it's universal. I wish I'd spent more time with the kids. I wish I'd told my wife that I love her more. Faced with death, forgiveness is one of the key issues that is on our radar. The second thing that he talks through is the need for remembrance. The need for some sense of immortality. He talks about the people want to be remembered. They want to know that what they did on earth won't be forgotten. That they won't be forgotten. There's this desire to live on in the thoughts and minds of someone. O'Reilly says that the most common question he gets asked after the one, is this it? And he says, yes, it probably is is will you remember me? See, all of us have this desire to be remembered, to live on in the lives of someone. The final pattern he talks about, the final thing that people bring up in these last moments, is the need to know their life had meaning. He says the dying need to know that their life had meaning, that they they need to know they didn't waste their life on meaningless tasks. He speaks about a woman who's trapped in a car while they're trying to free her. There wasn't anything else they could do. And she looked at him and said, there is so much more I wanted to do with my life. We want to know that what we have done on earth matters. 
It's moments of death that bring clarity. And in this passage that we've just read together now, we meet one man on death row. The Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. His future is unknown. He could be released to life or to the lions. Either way, that's his future. His life is totally in the hands of another. His crime had been speaking about a man he was convinced was God called Jesus of Nazareth. And he'd seen people turn from trusting their own gods or from serving the emperor to accepting the forgiveness Jesus offers and worshipping Jesus as God. And people did not like that. But what's odd about Paul in this moment is how calm he is. Listen to him in verse 21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Literally, Paul, at this moment of thinking through what life will be like, what his future will be in his last months, most probably, he's saying, look, I actually don't mind. Live or die, either way, I'm happy. And what gets someone to that point where they're totally satisfied in life and what is to come to be so calm and clear? Not to be worried about those three areas that people bring up. Well, I want to put it to you today that the common concerns people have in their dying moments are all crystal clear for Paul. He knows he's been forgiven. He's just been going around the world telling people about the forgiveness Jesus offers, that he died in their place, that he rose again. He's so convinced of that that he gives up his whole life to say, yes, I want people to know this. Jesus died in your place and he died for Paul too. And if you trust Jesus, your sins are forgiven, paid in full. Secondly, he knows the moment he shuts his eyes in death, like the thief on the cross, he'll be with Jesus in paradise. Immortality is his because he's put his life in the hands of another who was raised from the dead and offers life to all who come to him. And thirdly, he knew his life had meaning because he lived his life in light of the end Jesus brings. So many of us struggle with long-term thinking. We fail to save for the future because of the power of the present. We live for the here and the now, for the immediate. And when we get toward the end of our lives, I imagine there's a sense where we look back and wonder, have I done enough? Will I be remembered? Will I go on? What we see today in this passage is that living in light of the end because of Jesus dramatically shapes how we live in the present. So come with me to the start of the passage, Philippians 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I'm in Christ. Here, Paul is, is literally happy about his imprisonment. You can ask, where's this guy gone loopy? Like, whoa, I've gone to jail. You know? And these aren't kind of nice, soft, cushy jails like we have today where you can learn some new trades and kind of have a pillow and there's a toilet in your room. No, no, Paul's in this first century prison. It's horrific. Most probably, he's, he's chained to a guard. The way they did that, they would have a guard there and you'd be tra- chained to them. And they'd go on four-hour shifts and, and, and change. And Paul, Paul's like, this is great. Every four hours, I get another person that can't leave me and I can talk to them about Jesus. What has happened is advancing the gospel and the news that Paul is here for the sake of Jesus is going out amongst the whole prison guard. That's what he says. 
So now he can say to this church in Philippi, who he'd, he'd been through, who he'd planted, who were concerned for him as he writes this letter to them, that if you're concerned that the gospel message that you've trusted from Paul would, would, would be snuffed out, don't worry about it. This has happened for the advancement of the gospel. It's actually been good. The whole imperial guard knows Paul is there because of Jesus. But not only that. Look at this other benefit of Paul being in chains. Verse 14. Most of the brothers, the other Christians around Paul, have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. It's just remarkable that, that this life or death moment for Paul, he's, he's only concerned is that people get to hear the news of Jesus. He is so captured by Jesus, so captivated him by him of the news of his life and death and resurrection and ascension to be the king over all, that Jesus will come back again to judge the living and the dead, that that's what he lives for. That's how he weighs everything in his life. It's everything for Paul. Because for him and for everyone on the face of the planet, this news about Jesus shapes our eternity forever. You know what's missing in this whole section? There's no complaint about his jail cell. No complaints about the harsh treatment, the beatings, no hint of any personal inconvenience, like, oh, you know, it's been a bit tough being in jail, but hey, you know, there's some positive sides as well. He's just got razor-sharp clarity of what matters most, shaped by the light of the news of Jesus. Look at verse 20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be Highly honoured in my body, whether by life or death. He's what a man. What a, what a line. What, what, what a person to be able to have that clarity of being so captured by the news of Jesus that he evaluates his whole life on the basis of how he can honour him. Irrespective of whether that means life or death. It got me thinking, how do I evaluate my life? How do I think about whether what I've done matters or not? What I, what I live for matters or not? How do, how do you evaluate your life? What makes you go, yes, that's been worthwhile. That's been a good thing to do. I'm glad I did this or that. It's helpful to use the, the language of this passage. How would you finish this sentence? For me, to live is what? There are so many things that we can fill that line with. So many things on the radar of our attention that are saying, pick me, pick me. Things that we love to invest in. For me, to live is family. To live is, is career. It's reputation. It's relationships. It's experience. Paul says, Philippians 1.21, For me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He's saying this with crystal clear clarity. For us who are here and we think that this world is it, he says to live for anything or anyone else other than Christ is a waste of your life. It's a waste. It will never satisfy you. You can live for family, but when death comes, there's no gain to be had. It's horrific. You can live for career or for reputation, but the chances that your contributions to your company or to your workplace or to the world lasting more than a few months than someone else comes and replaces us, they're huge. Do you know, I looked up, what is the longest standing world record in athletics? 
Like how long did someone say, yes, I broke the world record and I'm the, I'm the world record holder? Do you know what it is? 34 years. 34 years, then someone else beat it. Your name's gone. Who was the person that was second? I don't, don't remember them anymore. And that's the longest. It's a nobody. Relationships and experiences get forgotten. And Paul's onto something. He's seen the reality of who Jesus is and how that shapes the present to live, to live life to the full, he says. It's to live for Jesus, living his way for the spread of his message. For only in Christ can death be counted as gain. Everything else is robbed by death itself. So Paul says in verse 23, I long to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. See, Paul here, he's so certain that for him, death means to be with Christ. That reality of the end shapes how he lives. It's such a a kind of a stake in the sand, such a, a platform that he stands on, and he's so convinced he changes everything in his life around that fact. He said in his letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Just as everyone who is a human, a descendant of Adam will die, and we all agree with that. So Paul is convinced all those that trust in Jesus will be alive. He tells the Corinthian church, go talk to the people if you don't believe it. There are people who have seen Jesus raised from the dead. We've heard what he said. It's not just some wishful thinking of Paul. Oh, it's nice to live that way. It's a nice kind of truth that he has, that he adds into his life amongst a mixture of everything else. It changes everything for him. Everything. The resurrection of Jesus... Changes everything, doesn't it? It's the news Paul gave up. He gave up everything to proclaim. It's the hope that gives meaning in life. It makes me wonder, has Christ and his resurrection gripped my life so much that I, that I shape my life around it, that I, that I evaluate my life by it? Is this the news that shapes how you live? What you live for and how you spend your your time, your energy, your finances, your future. In a few chapters' time, we're going to hear Paul say this. Chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Can you imagine that? No more pain, no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more sore joints in the morning or the evening or all the time. (laughs) No no more brokenness and sin in the world. No more kind of consistently doing what I don't want to do and not doing what I do want to do. Can Can you imagine being with our maker, seeing him face to face for eternity, knowing that nothing and no one can take that away anymore because Jesus is king and ruling on earth. Can you imagine nothing to fear? Perfect relationship with God and one another, with only eternity to look forward to. Can you imagine what that will be like to see him face to face and how we'll respond and to know that that lasts forever? Oh, 
Too often my ideas of eternity are too poor. My imagining of being with Jesus is too dim and distant and abstract. Do you find that? I was thinking the other day, I have seen my dad flesh for almost a year. My parents live in Australia and they were due to come just last month and spend time with us. But I haven't seen my dad for around a year in terms of in the flesh. I've heard his voice as we chat on the phone. And I've seen pictures of him come through this thing called the internet. And that's been great and a wonderful blessing. But there's a sense where I, I want to be with them. I want to be able to give my parents a hug and hear how they're going and, and support them and be alongside them. And there's a sense that we get that in, in physical relationships here in earth. We get what it is like to be with loved ones and we love it. But we, when it comes to Jesus and eternity, we forget That is a real, physical reality of the future for those who trust in Jesus. To be with our Saviour forever. To have Him embrace us. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You trusted me to the end. To see the new creation and to enjoy Him forever. Oh, If only I had the same longing to be with my parents as I do to... If only I had the same longing to be with my Saviour as I do to be with my parents... If only we thought through the reality of the line that to die is gain. Paul says, I long to depart and be with Christ. Oh, how I pray I would keep, grow- keep growing in how much better it would be if I longed like Paul longed. How I pray that, that, that God would keep shaping me to long like Paul does. So the joy of being with Christ forever towers over the wonderful pleasures of this life. And I see through these and go, yes, there is something good here and something right, but something oh so much better to come. But for Paul, that hope doesn't give desperation for life now. You might be feeling like, yes, take me now, take me there. I just want to be with him. But for Paul... He sees that there's something else that because of that future, it shapes what he does now. Look at verse 22. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul's torn. I want to be with Christ, but there's something here and now that... That's so important as well. I'm torn between being with Christ and living life to the full here and now. Now, you could understand it if Paul was saying, look, this life is so good. You know, this this accommodation I'm in, it's the best. You know, I'm loving it. There's people by my side, kind of at my beck and call all the time. Uh, You could understand it if if he was kind of saying, you know, oh, I've got eternity And that being with Jesus is great, but life now, I mean, there's the batch at the mount, that's so good. There's holidays at the beach, nights filled with dinner parties and good friends and children who are all amazing, not a care in the world. You could go, yeah, you know, I could see how you could struggle with those two. But that's not what he is saying. He's torn between being with Christ and dying every day for the sake of the gospel. Suffering so others could hear the news of Jesus. Doing whatever he can with all the energy and gifts and power and skill God has given him to serve those around him. That's what he's, that's what he's weighing up. Do I pour out myself and suffer for the sake of the gospel? Or, or do I go to be with Christ by far? I don't know what the end will be, but either way, I'm in. I don't mind. I'm torn. Look at verse 25. 
But since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. He's saying whatever is available for, for his power to do in this decision about whether he will continue or not, whether, what this judgment will be about him in prison, that whichever way he goes, he's not going to give up. He's not saying, ah, oh, stuff it, I'll just lie here and die. He's saying, I will remain. I will continue for all of you, for the, for the joy of promoting the gospel, for the joy of serving those God has put him on earth with for their progress and faith. So others might boast in Jesus, so others might be there in eternity. This is how he describes life to the full. Serving others. It's what he gives himself fully to do, joyfully and self-sacrificially, right up until the last day Jesus brings him home. For some of us, we forget how amazing being with Jesus will be. And so we seek heaven on earth. We forget that future and so we don't live in light of it. But for others of us, the pressure isn't to forget heaven. It's to go, yes, that's where I'm going and I'm going to put my life on cruise control till I get there. I'm going to switch life over into comfort mode. You know, I don't want to experience hardship. I don't want to suffer. I've got eternity to look forward to. I want to live the, the resurrection life now. I want that to be good now. And if it's not, well, I'm just going to cruise through life and do as little as I can to make any problems or, or, or things that could be hard so that I can just slide on into heaven unscathed and kind of, whew, isn't it great? We've arrived at our holiday destination. We don't want to suffer. We don't want others to look at us weirdly. Because we live for Jesus, because we talk about Jesus. Over the last year has been one of the hardest years of ministry for Sarah and I. I can't tell you that the number of times that I've sat at my desk thinking, this whole thing would be so much easier if we just stopped talking about Jesus. If we just went, look, that's great that we need to keep going into the Word and encouraging people to grow, but you know, someone else can do that. I'm kind of, why am I doing this? If we stop trying to love and lead people and see them grow in their love and knowledge of Jesus, it would be so much easier. And the temptation has been huge. It's just been kind of eight years of a church plant. We're away from family. All sorts of things have been going on. And then people you love, there's hardships between. The battle scars of putting Jesus first are deep and raw, as I'm sure they are for many of you. But for the sake of the gospel and the joy of knowing what Jesus has done for me and wanting as many people as possible to, to know his forgiveness and love and me hearing the example of Paul, I go, what else would you do <laughs> when we have the words of eternal life? Now, I know for many of you it's the same. You suffer the ridicule from family and friends for the gospel. You experience the hurt to your career, to your studies, to your reputation, to your bank balance, because you, you're sacrificially partnering with Paul and the gospel for the spread of the gospel. All of us, we need to keep hearing this word from Paul. What he says to me and to you today is this, keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Despite the hurt, Despite the sacrifice, despite the pain, living for Jesus and the spread of the gospel is worth it because Jesus died and rose again. It makes me think, you know, in a billion years' time, 
where you look back from Jesus' side and you look back at your time here on earth before Jesus returned, do you think you'll say, I wish I'd spent those 60, 80, 100 years on earth, I wish I'd spent them in more comfort. You know, I I wish I'd grown more wealth that I left behind. I, I wish I'd kept my mouth shut about Jesus a little more so that it wasn't hard in those short moments. And that, you know, maybe... Well, maybe there wouldn't have been as many people here, but it would have been easier then. I wish I'd just given up when it was hard and just gone, no, I don't don't want to follow Jesus anymore. Absolutely not. There's not not a chance in the world we would look back from that view and say, oh, I wish I'd done those things. We'll all be saying, how could I have suffered more? What else could I have given up for the sake of the gospel so others could share in this? So they could know him and, and, and that they could be standing here forever with the one who died for them. Paul says to the Philippian church, and he says to you and I, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that look like for you? To to live with all the skills and gifts and resources and energy that God has given you, to live for all those things for Jesus? What would it look like to say, for me, to live is life, is Christ, not life, to live is Christ? We're not all church-planting missionaries like Paul was. But every time you give sacrificially to the cause of the gospel, here at EV and other places, you're... You're partnering with God's mission of seeing more and more people come to know Jesus. Whether it's giving money or time, intellect, service. God never calls us to give what we don't have. But with what he has given us, he's entrusted us to use it all for his glory and the spread of his kingdom. He doesn't call us to give what he hasn't given us, just what he has What is it for each one of us to live for Christ? Well, it's to self-sacrificially give what he's given us for the spread of the kingdom. Why would you live for anything else? When you see it from eternity, when you see what Jesus has done and how the message of the gospel changes lives as it has for you, why would you live for anything else? Why would you invest in anything else? Why would you spend your time in anything else? And the implications of what Paul says here and what he does for us are enormous. I've got three to think through. The first one is this. We need to take every opportunity to proclaim Jesus. We need to start seeing people differently. As people that will either be in heaven or hell, who ever know Christ or not. We need to start seeing the world differently, not merely as a world to be travelled and enjoyed, but as people and places that need the news of Jesus. We need to start seeing our calendars differently, as how will I use my life and my time for the spread of the kingdom, for, for living God's way, for taking opportunities to speak words of the gospel, of, of inviting people around in my house, of, of taking that chance at work. As I look at my, my, my time at work, my time studying, my time with family, how will I use all of these moments for Jesus? We need to view our bank balances differently. How will I use what God has given me for his kingdom? How, how little can I keep to, to kind of live off so that I can then see more people come in for the sake of the gospel? 
Paul's trials in verse 12, they serve to advance the gospel. He looks at them without bitterness. No anger, no little pity party, look at me, how bad it is. No even no facts of his imprisonment, just the impact on it. Paul is single-minded for the sake of the spread of the kingdom. Now, please don't hear me saying we, we all need to go around shoving the gospel down people's throats. And it's like the only thing that matters is saying, oh, come to Jesus or you're not saved. And then you just move to the next person like some crazy repetitive robot. No, he's saying we should use our lives for God's glory to love others, but clearly with the gospel at, at the center. But if we saw all we have, our calendar, our bank balance, our relationships, with the words for Christ written across all of them, how would we live differently? My day at work for Christ, boom. My relationships with family and friends for Christ, boom. As I look at myself in the mirror and think, am I suitable to see the world and to go out into the world today? Am I wearing what should be okay for the world for Christ, boom. What helps me live for Christ is the example of people like Paul. Just normal Christians like you and me. Yes, his words became scripture, ours don't. But he's still a sinner saved by Christ. He doesn't have superpowers. He's just like us, broken. In fact, he says he's the worst of all sinners. Yet he's been saved and and, and given God's spirit. And so he lives for Christ. The same spirit that lived in Paul that enabled him to live this way. If you trust in Jesus, lives in you. Same spirit. The second thing we need to do is we need to rejoice in the spread of the gospel. No matter where it comes from. See, sometimes as Christians, we get into these kind of tribal wars with other Christians. We think, oh, they do things differently. They say things differently. We don't like them. We kind of look down our noses in judgment and say, the way we do things is so much better. Someone becomes a Christian in their church and you go, oh, yes, but, you know, they sing different songs to us, so it wasn't as good. You know, whatever it is, they do things not quite as well. Listen to Paul about what matters for him in verse 15. To be sure, he says, Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that that will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. And then you expect him to say, shame on them. How dare they do that out of bad motives? What does he say? Verse 18. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. How much more godly my life would be if I could rejoice in other Christians who share the gospel a little bit more, even if they're not from my camp. The passage here is notoriously tricky to work out. People are like, what is going on? Who are these people? What were they doing? Why are they causing Paul so much trouble in his imprisonment? There's lots of questions and lots of different possibilities. It's hard to work out the circumstances of what's going on, but you don't need to. The implications are blatantly clear, and I think they're things you and I need to hear in this church today. Because we can become so finicky about this church or that church. They don't preach through books of the Bible. They preach topically. 
They do this differently or that differently. They sing those songs or these songs. They have an altar call at the end. Uh, it's, they're really boring and people aren't kind of hearing them. Paul looks at us when we stand in judgment and says, get over yourself. Who cares as long as the gospel, the Christ who is crucified, Jesus is preached. Whether they do it from wrong motives or right motives, whatever is going on there, all that matters is that the true Jesus is proclaimed. Every time a soul is saved, we should rejoice no matter how that person came to know Jesus, that there'll be one more person in eternity, one more person treating Jesus as he truly is, rather than say, oh, yes, but no, 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 no. We need to hear this, because it's our tribe, it's us, it's me that can be down this line, and we need to repent of that. We need more rejoicing and less criticism. Less judgmentalism and more celebration about the way God works through whoever he chooses, as long as Christ is preached. Now hear me very clearly. Paul's not saying these, these teachers were false teachers. They weren't proclaiming another Christ. It was true what they were saying. So he can stand and say, this is great. So we're not saying, oh, if they're not preaching Jesus, as the Bible says, that his life, death, resurrection and ascension come to him, trust only in him, then no, that's, that's very different. But if they are and they're doing it a different way or a different style or from different motives, even if they're bad motives, even if it's for their own game, oh, that Christ be preached. Because the power is in what Jesus has done at the cross. The third implication for us is that we need to see how other person-centered Paul is. And this hurts. <laughs> listen to this sentence. Just listen to the words. Paul says in verse 23, I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And we're like, amen, Paul, yes. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Paul's like, none of this for me, all of this for you. For your sake. For your progress, for your boasting in Christ. Paul is not on about what fulfills him and makes him complete in life and having this life that everything is just amazing and butterflies. He's about what is good for others in eternity. We don't serve in church because it fulfills my desires. We don't serve others or use the opportunities we have because we say, oh yes, this will make me feel better, so that's why I do it. Paul doesn't say, like, you know, I've done this preaching thing for a while now. I've gone round, I've shared the gospel. It's been pretty effective. The gospel's been shared. I think I've done my bit. It's someone else's turn. I'm just going to sit on the bench for a while. And this has been such an encouragement for me. When, when times come that I just feel tired, I write another talk, deal with another issue. And you just feel like going, look, I've, I've done my time. I've done it for a bit. Someone else can just sub in for a while. But Paul says with everything he's been given to the end, for the sake of others. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that you know, we can never take a break. <laughs> no, there are times we need to take a break or change roles in ministry uh, for the purpose of coming back in and serving more or for greater gospel fruit, changing roles that will see the, the kingdom go forward more. No, that's all fine. But church and life, they're not about me. They're not about my preferences, 
They're not about what I want to be doing. They're not about you. We don't come to church for me as some consumers. We don't go out into the world to live for me. Paul says to live is Christ for him, his way, for his glory, for the spread of his kingdom. That is why we come to church. That is why we live and eat and breathe and exist and go to work and come home and love our families. To live is Christ. They got me thinking, what would such a selfless and other person-centered church look like? Imagine for a moment a church where people come early to, to kind of help set up and to chat to those who arrive early. And, and people leave late because they want to encourage those who are gathered together. They, they invite people around for lunch or for dinner and say, hey, come and hang out with us, even though they hadn't prepared it, even though it's hard. They, they, they pray for others as they're coming to church each week and throughout the week. Inviting people to come to church, to, to hear the gospel, to come around to their house. They're, they're taking opportunities to, to pray and share the news of Jesus with others. The people that are excited about singing songs, they don't even like the way they sing them because they know that it will help others join. They, they know it will help others understand the content better. They're people who would leave connect groups to start new ones. People moving house to kind of move to another part of the city or the country to see a church be planted. People selling houses so we can buy church buildings. People giving everything for the gospel. The world around would look at this church and go, what is wrong with you? What are you living for? And we would say, Jesus. So that you would see that what matters most to me is Christ. And you coming to know him as your king. Now, what's encouraging about that list is that so much of it is already in existence here at EV. We don't have to imagine all of that. We see it week in and week out in the lives of people here, and that is so encouraging to see the way God is working in each and every one of us. The encouragement from Paul today is this. Keep going. Do not give up. Don't say, I've done my bit, I've run my race. Until the day Jesus takes you home, live for Jesus 100% in every area. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no better way to live. And there is no better way to die than in Christ. So why don't you join me and ask God right now to help us to live and die for him. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have made yourself known, that Jesus has come and, and died in our place and risen again, and that you have showed us this news of life. Well, we confess that too often our eyes shift from the reality of what eternity will be like, and we forget that our home is with you. We confess that sometimes we, we do want to knock life into neutral and just cruise on into eternity. But we're so thankful for the Apostle Paul and his encouragement to the Philippians and to us to keep living for Christ, to use all the moments of our lives for the spread of the gospel, for the spread of the kingdom. So we ask that you would show us through your spirit and by your word how we can live for you more, what areas we could... Give to be used for the kingdom. We could keep our responsibilities as, as people in families and friends. And as we do that, to together be partnering for the spread of the news that Jesus died and rose again. 
Help each one of us this day to keep living for Christ and to see death as gain and to the world around us. Show them how amazing Jesus is. We pray this in his great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.